Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh to all of our listeners and also to Maman Malana Saab uh, for joining us. Um, obviously, as you've seen from the poster, today's topic is on society and we've actually got one of the figureheads of Sunderland Society with us, Malana Yusuf. Um, I think just before I came here, I was listening to um, our spiritual gathering <clears throat> our mother son they were saying about <clears throat> the diminishing society and how it starts at home and obviously we're going to delve into the topics with Malana Saab but we tend to blame society on a lot for a lot of our problems um, but we don't really tend to think of our responsibilities um, towards the wider community we just think we've become selfish in the way we think um, which is what Amr Saab was saying as well we, to benefit society we need to be more selfless rather than selfish um, and this is something we're obviously, inshallah, we're going to talk about. Um, so before we do get into that, I'd like obviously to ask Molana Saab to introduce himself. Um, what you do, Molana? Just a quick rundown, basically. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Jazakallah to to Molana Abu Khalid and himself for for inviting me along. So my name is Yusuf Mia. Um, I'm a resident obviously of Sunderland. I'm a graduate of Darulun Bari. Um, and after graduating, I've been um, an imam here at the University of Sunderland um, for quite a long time now. Um, we're slowly moving towards 20 years, um, so time is ticking on. Um, I, I, after graduation, I studied at the University of Sunderland. Um, I did my undergraduates, and then further on, I went to Newcastle to do my master's. Um, and currently, I serve at the University of Sunderland as the main imam, and also we've recently established our madrasa known as Beitul Ilm Academy um, and my sort of mainstream contribution is also I'm involved as a public health lead um, at Sunderland City Council. So we're fingers in a lot of pies, Malana, yeah? Yeah, yeah, fingers in as many pies as possible. So obviously, like you said, you're a resident of Sunderland and you're also involved in positions of authority as well. So just... So we get an idea of sort of itself and the locality because obviously I'm not from here. Mm-hmm. How society changed from when you were growing up to now? You know, the, the differences in everything basically. SubhanAllah, I think um, when we were children, when we were young in the 80s, um, there was a lot of, especially in Sunderland, you know, for those listeners who were from that era, it's not Stone Age, but from that yeah. era, um, there was a lot of racism, a lot of um, sort of you know, we felt that we were very different from society and communities. You were seen differently, you were treated differently, and I think that had a a massive impact. And although our parents had sent us to Madrasa, maybe one of the reasons for that, although I've not ever got that substantiated, but was also to move away from this sort of racism into a bit of a safe zone. Um, To be honest, when I first went to Madrasa, this just gives you an example of how Sunderland was. When I first went to Madrasa, I was shocked to know that there was Muslims from other parts of the world. You know, there was Indian Muslim, Pakistani Muslim, African and Arab. And this was the first time I was exposed to something of that nature. And every time you had come back home to Sunderland, um, it, it would feel very, very sort of marginalized, very white British. Um, you know, you know, my, my time in growing up in Sunderland um, until about year seven was very much insular um, very much sort of protected from the outside um, racism should we say that's my assumption of it yeah um, I can't I can't think of any other reason why parents be very worried about us getting outside and spending that time I, I remember um, a number of different challenges 
um, as a youngster. Just actually the other day, I was taking my son to school and I, I indicated to us an old man who was walking on a walking stick. And I said, I still remember that man. He's chased me around Diamond Hall, you know. <laughs> so today he's an old man. I could turn the tables, but obviously I wouldn't. So, yeah, I think it was a challenging um, period, the 80s and the early 90s. I think um, something that you touched on the morning about uh, parents sending us away to um, Madrasa when we were quite young. Um, so one of the things I've been recently thinking about when when I um, uh, when we decided to put this topic for you was um, growing up in this country um, as Muslims, as Asians, we are dealing with quite a few um, identities. And I think as parents, especially our parents, um, when they came from back from from back home and they were living and establishing them, themselves in, in, in the UK, they were concerned about protecting their identity as a, for example, as a Bengali, mm-hmm. then as a Muslim, so, and then obviously um, trying to sort of integrate into the wider society at the same time. Mm-hmm. So th- they had those kind of challenges, um, but that was a major concern for them. And I think um, thinking about them sending all away to Madrasa, mm-hmm. Again, to me, it could be to protect us from that, not just from racism, but also to protect our identity whilst we're growing up so that, you know, we don't become like Shadas. Because mm-hmm. th- that was a big hoo-ha, wasn't it, back yeah, then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but personally, I think that's kind of changed now, you know. Um, obviously, we are growing up, we are integrating. Um, in those days, our parents probably didn't have friends outside their own circles. You know, if it was Bengalis, yeah. Bengalis would st- tend to stick with the Bengali sides and yeah. Indians with the Indians and vice versa. Um, but do you think that's changed or? I think, um, I do think that has significantly changed. I think, you know, in the name of understanding identities, in the name of challenging culture, we are leaving our sort of roots and accepting or um, sort of not accepting, but merging into a culture which is not necessarily something that we're accustomed to. And something which... You know, for, for a long, long time, actually given many, many talks um, on this agenda around, you know, culture, religion and so on. But I've always struggled with this concept that you know, this is inevitable. You know, you're going to, people are going to merge into, as third, third, fourth generation, they're going to merge into some sort of a different approach in their behaviour, their culture, their mentality. Like somebody said to me, one of the youngsters said to me, um, you know, we're English, you know, that's what we are. And it was very, very difficult to explain to this 10-year-old that we're not English. You know, we are, from our perspective, Bengali or Pakistani, whatever it is. And because we are not interlinking with our heritage and our culture, you know, I think that is changing. Now, not only because, and I don't put the blame on the children. And yeah, yeah. I think it's it's the responsibility of parents to maintain some sort of link to that culture, which I think our parents try to do. And I think, you know, you know, as as I come to the you know the bleak forties, um, <laughs> and I start to you know to reflect on and meet with various people. I went to um, Haslingdon, and in Haslingdon, I went into their local mosque, and I was having a conversation with some elderly people, and we were talking about the mediums of learning, Islamic learning, where you know a lot of the times we're doing stuff in English, and we're trying to teach our children, and again from English to Arabic, Arabic to English, and so on. And we had a whole conversation around using mother tongue, you know, be Bangla or Urdu and so on. And an old man said something, and I think it sticks with me, I think it's really useful to note to that. He said that for 200 years, the British Raj um, colonized India yeah. for 200 years. But in that period, they did not change their language, they did not change their clothing, 
they remained how they were. And when they were sort of excluded and taken out from the Indian subcontinent um, by um, those fighting for independence, they returned back to their homeland with the same culture, with the same clothes, with the same language and the same identity. And what he then said to me, and which really made me think, was we've only been here for 60, 70 years. Yeah. And we've already lost our clothing, our language and our identity. And why is it that the British were there for 200 years and that didn't change? So it shows that actually, even for the British, their culture, their language, their identity is a significant contributor to who they are. And mm. I think for us, you know, in the name of merging and, you know, becoming part of popular culture, it becomes that we lose all this identity. And I think that's detrimental. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that is really yeah. good food for thought. Um, but going back to our elders, because that was one of the fears, because I remember um, like my father, he took us to Bangladesh for over a year, you know, forget school, forget everything. We were there for over a year. He sent me mm. to Madrasa, I learned Bangla and everything. My sisters, my brothers, everyone. But that came out of a concern that, you know, they wanted to, us to learn the culture and to make sure that it's part of part of our life as well. Mm. And the fear that they had was like, when we, as we are growing up, we're going to lose that culture. Um, but do you think that, you know, that fear... I think the, the fear is substantiated. Yeah. I'm, I'm living it. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I don't need to give you sort of <laughs> theoretical perspectives. I think, you know, I struggle with my own, you know, when it comes to, for example, let's say... You language. Know, language. Yeah. Language is a big, big one. Yeah. You know, I used to, in the early... Before I had, I had children, I used to think, you know, what's the big deal? Let them speak English. What's the problem? But now I've got my own children and realise that it's not only that you're talking English at home... But because you're speaking English at home and you're not speaking any Bangla at all, um, even amongst the couple, you're not yeah, speaking yeah, Bangla at all. Because yeah. we all everybody's speaking English. Yeah. The only time you change your language is when your parents walk in or your grandparents walk in. Or you want to hide something. <laughs> or you, you want to hide something, yeah, from the kids. Yeah. So what tends to happen is you speak Bangla then. But because we don't converse in Bangla, what tends to happen, the children accustom themselves in, you know, being normal to speak English. Now that has an eye find that, that you know people could agree disagree, but I'm talking about my personal life experience, not only in my own home now, but also for the people I support and engage with. I find that when they lose that language, as a start, a stepping stone in starting to lose other steps of culture and identity, which our parents, you know, um, you know, feared. For example, I still remember very very well you know, learning Bangla in in Maktab. You know, and the thing is, you know. Um, these things that you picked up and you learned, you know, had an impact in how you see your culture today. So, for example, and I just want to add to this, I think, you know, in our cultural norms, what is deemed as respect, what is deemed as honourable, what is deemed as, you know, culturally acceptable is very different to other cultures. And that's the nature way things are. But if we don't maintain any of that, then as a, as a, as a couple in the home, then the kids are never going to see any of that sort of um, uh, um, cultural approach. And my son, as he says, you know, but why are you always talking to me in Bangla for? Talk to me in English, because that's what we do. <laughs> but, you know, and the thing is, the reason I'm trying to make that effort now, maybe it's, it's, it's becoming a bit late now, but nevertheless, try to make that effort yeah. when my ch the children get frustrated. But the whole idea is that if I can do that, then at least then they'll be able to pick some of it up, if not everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think we've had this discussion before about the language. Um, one of the things I've noticed, as obviously my kids, you know, I'm in the same exact boat. I've yeah. not really spoke to Bangladesh, talked to them, yeah. and it's always English. But 
when I compare my children to those children that know Bangla and also know English, the way they interact is uh, there's a there's a difference because yeah, yeah. when you're interacting in Bangla, mm. you can show respect. Yes, yes. You know, to me and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a difference in in that language mm. how you're addressing someone. Mm. But when you are speaking English, there is no difference. There is no respect in the language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the words of so like, if you're speaking to your father. You will say you. Yeah. If you're speaking to no, you say you. If you're speaking to your grandfather, you say you. Yeah. If you're speaking to your teacher, but in saying that you, there is no like you know you can't see the respect. Whereas in Bangla, depending on who you speak to, you can choose your words carefully to is, yeah. demonstrate that respect. Yeah. And because you're demonstrating that respect through language, automatically you respect that person. Well, yeah. Not just through the language, but as a person as well. It so, isn't, you know, that point about you. You know, for the elders we say afne. Yeah. And for the youngsters we might say tumi. Yeah. And it's about explain, uh, but just that, just that, ha- has an impact on how what the outlook of the children are. Yeah, yeah. You know exactly. Yeah, and the consequences is that um, by teaching them English and just you, 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 there is no respect. There isn't for, and for, for anyone. You know, even the English community who I engage with. When they hear that you speak multiple languages, you know, they marvel at that. Yeah. You know, in today's society, how many people do you get that speak four, five, six different languages? You know, it's seen as an art. Um, for us, it's not an art. It's just normal, you know, to speak, um, you know, two or three languages because of the way we need to interact. Yeah, so yeah. I think coming back to your question, Malan, I think as we move on into um, society, I think with all due respect, I think parents are to blame, you know, in, in the name of, um, you know, merging into society in the mer- in the name of you know b- becoming you know english as they call themselves you know i think it is challenging and i think for me without repeating again but the example i gave from the husband an example i think just hits brings it home definitely does yeah but i think one thing you probably be dealing with a lot um as an imam is at the moment there is a big hoo-ha about culture and islam yeah where people you know they, they would say Accept, Islam doesn't accept culture and you know the culture is bad for you and it goes against Sunnah mm. and Quran so in, in line with today's topic how would you as a Muslim define culture and make sure that it is part of you as a Muslim as well okay and um, a bit of an opportunity to do some advertisement here um, <laughs> I gave a talk actually at the university okay. um, on culture and Islam and it's interesting that you know so my addressal was that you know it, it, these are two unique things that go hand in hand. Um, and examples of that is the Prophet ﷺ came amongst the Arabs. They had a specific culture, a specific tradition. Now, as long as that culture did not contradict a religion, there wasn't a problem with that. Yeah. Um, but in today's society, we see as culture as the other. You know, it's not compatible. So, uh, for example, at the university when I gave the talk, majority of the questions were things like, oh, you know, it's against the Sharia or against against Islam. Yeah, yeah. And and majority of those questions came from whom? The youngsters. There were many elders that were sitting in the group as well. And they were on the other side of the, of the fence. They're like, no, no, it's absolutely <laughs> compatible. So I think the point is, from my perspective, and what I've not just taught, lived, but see, is I think they are definitely compatible. I think with all, you know, the first or the second generation sometimes might exaggerate the cultural position and give it more position than religion. And that's where the problem begins. Yeah. You know, take, for example, marriage. You know, we know so many cultural problems that we experience um, in our communities when it comes to marriage. Um, you know, for example, father will say that, you know, to his daughter that you need to get married. 
um, culturally, dad said it, you should do it. But the girl, you know, for example, she doesn't want to do it. And she says, no, clearly, I don't want to get married in yeah. this scenario. Um, culturally, that's embarrassing. Yeah. You know, and I you know, appreciate these are sometimes no-go areas to talk about. But the reality is, oh, you know, um, you know, she's done besti. Oh, she's the besti <laughs> of the father. Yeah. But the thing is, in, the true factor is that's not the case. Because now you have a situation where, you know, culturally it might seem wrong to the family, family yeah. but to the child culturally it's fine. I just need to say what I need to say. Um, but she needs to say that to be happy in life. But the father is finding it very, very embarrassing, very you know uncomfortable because she's breaking away from those, some of those cultural aspects. My thing is that it needs to be. We're gonna. We're living in the twenty first century Britain. Now we we can't be living in a scenario where half of our soul is here and half of its soul is in Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah. Because the truth is, we might be like that as first generation, but the, our second and third generation, it's, they're completely here. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. the point is, we give them the taste of culture, enable them to appreciate the culture, but do not let it be a, 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 a sort of a, a sore for them. So I think it's 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 very difficult. You know, it is difficult managing, and I think. For for ourselves who appreciate culture, I think as long as not it is not contradict with religion, um, yeah, I think that's the key point. Isn't that's it? the key point. And you know, today, Alhamdulillah, in for example, in Sunderland, we've got so many ulama, you know, so many ulama. You know, th- there isn't an excuse. You know, if if you want to consult, there's no use with all respect picking the phone up and asking your masabzi in the body. There's no use. Yeah, you know, yeah, you'd yeah. rather not. You know, you rather ask. You know, some other person on the street on Sunderland. No, because that Molana in Bangladesh, with all respect to that person, will not be able to give you a cultural, social, traditional, religious answer that is comprehensive. All round, yeah. All rounder. Exactly. They won't be able to give you that. Um, so, for example, I've had a situation, and you know, I appreciate this might be on the extreme, where a family's been in touch and said, you know, that the hospital's been in touch, saying, you know, we need some support. This is quite an interesting one. And, you know, we said, I said, what's the situation? And it was sad that there was a scenario where a child was in, in a neonatal ward. And, you know, unfortunately, the child was, you could say, brain dead. And um, they wouldn't, the, the, the doc- doctors had said to take, turn the machine off. And um, the parents, you know, the, the mother was from this country. Okay. The father was from back home. Okay. And they fell out. The husband and wife started to fall out over this very delicate, sensitive situation. And the reason they were falling out because the husband was saying, I rang my masabzi in Bangladesh and he said, Ita <laughs> You know, <laughs> if you turn the machine off, it's murder. Okay. But the thing is, he's not understanding the context. While the yeah, mother, yeah. so the, the mother get, got in touch and says, well, please help us out here. Try to get him to understand. So you come in and you get involved and enable them to understand based on the culture and the situation. And um, although the response was, the, you know, you're responsible for this. But the truth is, is enable them to understand what is the cultural norms in the country that we exactly, live in. Yeah. So what I say is that, you know, and, and, and I'm sure you've observed that even in our community, there's strong back home politics, yeah. you know, and that's detrimental because you, you know, you could do as many, and one child said to me just two days yesterday, I said to him, oh, why don't you speak to your dad? Because oh, this is a 10 year old boy. He said, forget him. I've never seen, I never see him. And with respect, that same father, I'm not going to mention names, that same father is one of the key political figures of Sunderland. Yeah. What's the use of being out and about, yeah. make campaigning on your political platform when your own child is hating you? Yeah. you know, and we as imams have to deal with that. Exactly. You know? yeah. And we are finding that there's a lost generation because of the clash of culture and religion and scenario, in, in these scenarios. So I think long story short, Malala, you know, so much could be said, but I think 
is that we need to understand where our priorities lie. And I think this struggle won't finish. You know, we've seen these struggles go to London, Birmingham, Oldham, Bradford. We've seen these struggles of cultures. Yeah. But we are coming now to a second and a third and a fourth generation where, you know, we'll start to see a lot more amalgamization between, you know, society and us as, as Muslims. As long as we get people to understand that our culture is not, nothing wrong with it, you know, it's a cherished thing. I think then people will start to appreciate it. And I also want to add, and this costs a bit more as well, like, <laughs> but I think we should take our kids back home. You know, yeah. you take the kids back Definitely, home. Yeah. And you know what happens is, you know, the, the, it has a bit of an influence of, of way, what they see you know, and how they are affected. Because the truth is, you know, we, we we're not in Bangladesh. You know, we're not in, um, in, in, in the village. And when you take them and get that real hand experience, then it makes a bit of that difference. Yeah, and I think um, from my personal experience, when you go, when you do go to Bangladesh, you and you come back here, you actually um, appreciate things a lot you do, more. You do. Yeah, because you see for yourself, like this is where I could have been, and this yeah, is yeah, you know, absolutely. this yeah, is where yeah. my father and my grandparents, yeah, you yeah. know, grew up, and this is this kind of struggle they went through. Yeah, yeah. And then it's not just about the culture at that point; it's about actually, you know, appreciating every blessing that you've got, appreciating yeah. life. And I've, I've seen one of that is. I've started to see, you know, Alhamdulillah, there are some parents and families who do this. Yeah. But there's a growing trend now that not a lot of people go back home. You know, especially the second, third generation. I was just actually talking about this with my family because mm-hmm. um, we were talking about holidays. Mm. And in the group, everybody was saying, well, I, I don't want to go to Bangladesh. I prefer go to Morocco or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. anywhere except for Bangladesh. But yeah, yeah. Just like you're saying. But it's true. That, you know, it's expensive though. You know, it's cheaper <laughs> to go for Umrah than going to Bangladesh. Yeah. But the thing is, it has an impact. I, more, and I just recently went with my family. And, you know, I came back with that intention that shall every five years, I kids go back once, even for two weeks, because it has that impact. Definitely does, yeah. At least they come back and, you know, they come back with the words of Afne, and Tumi, <laughs> and Gio, and Jinea, <laughs> at least this much. Exactly. Yeah. Along with the cultural identity, another thing that I see people, like in uni and stuff, I've noticed is people tend to lose their Muslim identity as well. And obviously being, you know, involved in the University of Sunderland, what, what do, why do you think that is? What empowers people to make that decision to... I've seen literally people shave off their beards because they don't want to be known as Muslim or mm-hmm. especially when they go to university, they've got that freedom. So how do you think we need to... Is it just knowledge? Is it just the people around you? What is it that affects that? Okay, so I'm a, I'm a strong believer of further education. You mm-hmm. know, people... In, the, in many of our communities, when you talk about university learning... You know, it's always demonized sometimes. Yeah. You know, girls are messed up, boys are messed up, they're partying all night. I think the reality is otherwise. I think the reality is, is otherwise. Um, so, why? well, it does happen. Don't get me wrong, it does yeah. happen. Now, you know, the youngsters, when they're at home, um, they're under the wing of their parents. Mm-hmm. You know, even as we grow, you know, I'm a 40-year-old man, I'm still, you know, <laughs> have you been to the mosque and so on. The thing is, we're always under that guidance of our parents. Now, when youngsters, um, regardless of their background, the moment they come to some open freedom, you, you see that obviously that has a, a challenging impact on them. Now, I found that the reason this affects people is the effect from home. If they've not had a strong influence at home of an Islamic culture, identity, um, belonging, then when they come to university, you know, then they say in Bangladesh, they just, because there's this freedom, there's no limitation to that yeah. freedom. And they do what they want, how they want. So, on the other hand, is, of course, the situation is that when they come to, some people who may have had some sort of supervision at home, they come to uni and they have a bit of that impact as well, where they lose their beard, they lose their hijab, they, you know, because they're exposed to so many different philosophies. Now, 
you know, I've always said this to students and I say this again and again, is it's the matter of company. You know, it depends who they hang around yeah. with. <laughs> and an idle, man, an idle mind is a Satan's workshop. You know, you're much more better in staying in good company than staying by yourself. That's a very famous hadith, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. min jalis al jalis salih min al So, and I, in, I encourage, that's why, for example, in our university, and I can't say about another university, but at least in our university, we try to keep the masjid as buzzing as possible. Just yesterday, the University of Sunderland Islamic Society received the Society of the Year Award because sure. of all the, this is the first time ever, it's because of the engagement levels that they've tried to do um, to keep the Muslims a bit more connected. The reason I feel that is so important in university life is that if you don't keep in the company of good people, then you'll just do what you want, how you want, when you want. Yeah. Um, and that, that is, the, I think, the, the driving factor. You'll observe yourself that those people who keep, so for example, if there's home students, let's say um, Sunderland students who are living home, it's very rare that you will see them go off track. Mm-hmm. Um, if you be in Newcastle or wherever, it's very rare. Or people who are living amongst their own family, maybe wider family, international students who've come and living amongst their own wider family. Uh, the third category is those people who live amongst good friends. So you'll see, for example, in the university masjid, you know, groups, they come together, you know, mm-hmm. pray namaz, all friends, our medical school, pharmacy, others, they all come together in collectively to, to pray namaz. And, you know, they're all praying namaz, they're spending a lot of time in the masjid because they've keeping that company. Many a times, those people that struggle are those who have no sense of bond, who have no connection. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. happens to them is they start to test here, a bit, here, a bit, here, and they end up becoming sort of, um, you know, prey to the wolf. Yeah. And that ends up happening. So, you know, I, I do think um, a lot of university Muslim students are religious. I find that they don't, when I say religious, they incline towards something. Yeah. You know, yeah. they might not be fast off the namaz, they're five times namaz, but they're inclined towards something. They just need to be of hand held and yeah, yeah. To, guided. But the thing is, it all starts from home. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that bit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the truth. You know, if the parents, the environment hasn't been perfect, Oh, not perfect, but ideal. You know, if the parents haven't been on the child's case, let them do what they want, how they want. They have this big pride. But the thing is, there's no harm in that pride. If they don't maintain that pride with some sort of a religious connection, then it becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see the problems. You touched on it, Molana, that the masjids are like the community hubs like we hear on, you know, the stories of the Prophet and the Sahaba. They used to use the masjids for everything. Mm Obviously, you're in touch with the the young community and stuff. So, what do you think the the masjids are sort of missing to get young people, like people of like you know university, the people that move here, but they're not inclined to go towards the masjid? But how do we make that a hub, yeah. you know, back again? So, no, that's a very good point about it, even the masjid of Al Madinah Al Munawwara was the central hub. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you look at um, many of the Arab traditions and communities, you know, they'll have either the masjid has a part as a community center or the masjid itself is used as a function of that nature. I think um, in our community, especially South Asian communities, the concept of the masjid that is only a place of salah and nothing else is still very you know, yeah. uh, dominant. Um, and even, and not just that, I think, you know, now I think in the Gujarati community, in the Arab, it's a lot more excelled. Our, you know, Bangladeshi communities, you know, how many masjids are there in the UK that you can go to that they have facilities for women? Now, I'm not saying that the women have to pray salah in the masjid, mm-hmm. but at least activities for women, you know, be it coffee mornings or whatever it is. Because I think, you know, 
this, this with all respect, you know, people, so-called ulama, come from Bangladesh and they throw a fatwa out and leave it like the fish out of the water, which is, you know, uh, you know, turning left, right and center. And everybody finds opportunity to talk about these things. But the thing is, you have to go in accordance to the culture of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if our women folk are fully allowed to go to the town center, to go to work, to engage to Al-Adama in cafes, then what's the harm in them popping to the masjid? You know, if it's Salah time, I went to Birmingham and I had to allow the family to pray Salah in a masjid where I would argue that they were not of my manhaj. They were not of my methodology. But the thing is, I had no choice because every masjid I would go to of my methodology, there was no facilities for women. So I think the answer to your question is that, yes, the masjid is a place of worship. And I know it's not easy, you know, when you have scarcity of space, you don't have no space, it's challenging. But I guess the masjids need to open up to offer... um, you know, a bit more of the um, traditional, let's cult- say, so, you know, the popular culture. Mm-hmm. So, I'll give you some examples of what we try to do. Now, ours isn't a Shari'i masjid. You know, I make that point very clear right <laughs> on the outset. It's not a Shari'i masjid. But, can you, you know, just explain the, um... the def- definition? Yeah, yeah. The Shari'i masjid is that place which is developed, created by the community, specifically for Salawatul Khams, for the five daily prayers, yeah. mm-hmm. which includes um, the Salah of Jum'ah and Eid and so on. So that is, and it's defined for that. Yeah. When the university masjid here in Sundulam was being established, I made that point that it is not a Shari'i masjid for a number of different reasons. Firstly, so that we can do a lot more social hub activities. We've got, alhamdulillah, Chester Road Jamia Masjid, we've got a masjid in St. Mark's Road, we've got a masjid in Hendon. They are Shari'i masjids. But here, and I make that point again and again clear, that this is not, even when Musallis come, I say, by the way, this is not a Shari'i masjid. Because why it allows us to be able to, even with respect, when women are in their monthly cycle, they're still able to come to the masjid. Because it's not a Shari'i masjid, it's just a prayer center. You know, and I think if you look at the road to Bolton, I was quite marveled to see when to Zakaria masjid, even in the main Jamatkana upstairs, and they've put a border around, I don't know if you observed this, they've put a border around, and that border is specific, specified for women in their monthly cycle. Oh, That's forward thinking. That is you know, yeah. And they are hardcore, they open the masa, you know, <laughs> masajid. You know, you can't argue any stronger than that. The point, and you know, similarly, I went to London, in places like that, they are defining places. Mm-hmm. So what my point is that locally, you know, and I appreciate the space is a challenge, but the truth is, regardless of being a challenge, you can make it, um, multi-dimensional and you know I, I wouldn't say try to change the space in one go but started to do a little more activities and don't now people blame the imams quite easily oh the imams are doing this why blame the imams there's a committees in place yeah, exactly yeah. you know mm-hmm. committees have a responsibility not only to pay the electricity bill and the clean the masjid to put on activities to try to do a bit of innovation yeah and um, but it's very easy to leave it on the imam and expect <laughs> the imam to do everything yeah. and pay them pe- and pay them peanuts where, you know, you just want the electoral vote and then think, you know, I mean, I'm involved. Yeah. The truth, and I was saying, uh, today I was in a mashwara with one of the masjid committees, and I was saying to them that think about what you can do to make the masjid productive. But what can you do, anything that you do, even if that means becoming charity registered, what's the benefit for the masjid? Yeah. Ultimately, that should be at the forefront. What's the benefit of the masjid? And how does the masjid play as a central hub for the community? I think if you go down that direction, then inshallah, I believe that that's the direction of the example of Al-Masjid al-Nabawi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And if we go down that and open the books of Islamic tarikh and you'll find this is exactly how it was. Yeah. You know, to the extent, you know, the um, the very famous of the Ustuwan al-Lubaba, where he was tied onto the pillar in, where? in the masjid. 
And he remained on that pillar tied as a um, a prisoner of war. The point is that that is the situation how it was. So I think there's many, many opportunities. I think think the tide is changing. Please don't I mean, listen, I think the tide is changing, but maybe it's slower than it should be. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I think it's quite a pertinent issue because um, Niaz, who's my brother, he lives in Leeds and he went to a masjid outside of Salah times. He knocked on to get a timetable or something. And the guy goes, it's Bengali masjid. And he goes, why are you here outside of Salah times? That's literally yeah, what he yeah, said. Yeah. So he switched yeah. um, masjids for that. So you've also touched upon before, Molana, the importance of family, um, importance of family, sorry. And not just um, like an immediate family sort of situation, but an extended family. Again, it ties into the culture point. Um, so my muftis, I've just mentioned it today, actually. The, we're sort of breaking family ties, and that's a symptom of the, you know, a crumbling society. So... Mm-hmm. You know, to the people that maybe don't keep in touch with their, you know, extended family and stuff. How do we regain that, you know, that kinship and stuff? And um, I think first of all, I want to remind ourselves when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam came from Gharu Hira, and he, you know, every man knows if any man, uh, who knows the man the most, his wife. You know, okay. the wife knows that. You know, if you're a sheikh, you. In the eyes of your wife, you're actually a sheikh. <laughs> if you're a madhubash, you're a madhubash. The wife knows you through and through. I remember one of our teachers telling us a story. Before I answer your question, yeah, yeah. Telling, um, telling us a story that there was a, a certain sheikh, a, very, a true wali of Allah. And Allah had given him the capability. You know, this amongst the mystical um, tasawwufi points that Allah had given him the capability to fly. You know, and you know, we believe that the karamatu awliya Allahul haq, that it's true. So anyways, so... Um, the the the, the, the sheikh you know he whatever karamat he did then he came home and his wife said to him you know what we've seen a big sheikh mashallah he's actually flying in the in in the skies so he thought this is the moment to get the glory so he goes yeah yeah well, that's actually me because no wonder it's all bent all over the place <laughs> um so the point is the the wife knows um the husband the most the prophet when he came from gharu hira he, um, you know, he, he said to Aisha radiallahu anha, very famous hadith narrated by Imam Bukhari and others, that he said, Zammiluni, Zammiluni, cover me, cover me. And she embraced him and covered him. And she said, what happened? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam explained. So and Aisha radiallahu, so Khadija radiallahu anha, she mentioned five qualities about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she, because of those qualities, she said, Allah will make you go to, you know, go to waste. Okay. You know, and what are those qualities? I don't define all of them but one of those qualities she said that you maintain blood ties yeah, you maintain common. blood ties now amongst the many other you um deal with the pain of others mm-hmm. you help the needy and all that but one of those five qualities she said that you um maintain the uh, blood ties then we learn in the narrations and i'll come to your mm-hmm. answer i don't want to link it back to this yeah. then when the prophet went for hijrah when he went for Hijrah, who went with him? Amirul Mu'mineen, Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an, as he was leaving the city, he met a certain individual who was not Muslim. And now who was Amirul Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an? He was the best friend of Rasulullah sallallahu He was his father-in-law, his best friend. And he was Sahib al-Ghar, the companion of the cave. And when he was going out, this individual who was not a Muslim said to him, Oh Abu Bakr, if you leave Al-Makkah al-Mukarramah, this is a great loss for the people of Makkah. Why? Because, and he also counted exactly those five things that Khadija radiallahu anha said about the Prophet sallallahu And he also said the same thing about Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu And amongst those things he said that one of your beautiful qualities is this, that you maintain blood ties. 
So I think from a from a religious perspective, you know, this is something that has been emphasized, you know, even from the beginning of Risala, throughout Risala, and even towards the end, very famous theme, the Ansar of Medina, they became a bit angry, not angry, you know, they became displeased with how the Prophet would distribute booty. Yeah. And when the booty would come, he would give, he would give it to the Muhajirin first. And they said, oh, is that because he's, they, no, they're his own? The Prophet ﷺ said to them, oh, um, Ansar, oh, Ansar, you know, yes, I might give them the booty because they're the Muhajirin, they've sacrificed everything and they've come here. They'll have everything, all of this booty, but you have Rasulullah So the point coming to your question is that, you know, in today's day and age, you know, we give, I'll give the example of charity. We give so much charity to every needy in the world, except for my blood cousin brother, you know, except for my blood own. Because why? Because they are my blood, you know, for whatever reason, we see the need of others more important than the need of my own. But actually the Sharia stipulates that when it comes to giving the needy, the greatest place you can give zakat to is your blood. Um, blood relatives, you know, that's what I'm referring to as regards to blood. When you come to charity, it is more important that we give to our needy blood relatives than we give to the destitute of the world. But, you know, it's reversed. We give it to everybody else except for them, yeah. you know, except for them. So I think, you know, in today's culture, I think, you know, coming back to the earlier point, Abu Khalid, our parents, I don't know if you observe, like, and I was talking to my cousin brothers and I was saying to them that we've got such a good relationship. You know, us, me and my first cousins and my mom's side and my dad's side. Mashallah, we've got a very good relationship. That's all because my parents ensure that you know who your Sasa Gorobayan and Mama Gorobayan and Fufu Gorobayan are. But we are slowly, slowly moving away from this. You know, we're becoming a bit more isolated. You know, we don't really know many, many people. And this, as a result of which, this is having a significant impact. Because then we care about everybody else and we don't care about our blood own. But the Sharia is very clear that you look after your own before you look after everybody else. I think furthermore is we're becoming a bit more of a selfish society. You know, and I address myself, we're becoming a bit of a selfish society. So I say about this, if you, if I rang my mum now and, you know, I said, you know, there's 30 of us coming, you know, they're all like, okay, I'll get everything ready. You know, there, there was this forward comingness yeah, to yeah. be hospitable yeah. to your guests. And by the way, this was also amongst those five qualities Aisha Khadija mentioned about the Prophet and that individual mentioned about Abu Bakr, which was what? Being hospitable to your guests. Now, the thing is, you know, forget, we, we are hospitable to our friends. We're hospitable to everybody else. But when it comes to our own, oh, did they really have to come now? <laughs> you know, is there no other better time for them to come? Or a guest is coming, we prefer, no, I'm, I'm not saying this, these are wrong, but what my point is that we, you know, they say in Bangladesh that yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. start to like, you know, raise your nose and think, oh, do I really have to? So, you know, we need to really take a step back and think what is the expectation from Allah and His Rasul in regards to our blood kin. Naturally, if you, um, you know, have a good, strong relationship with your blood kin, they are the ones going to stand up for you. It's not going to be a friend. Now, how many times have we seen somebody falls in, you know, as they say, crap hits the fan. When crap hits the fan, the it's... first people that stand up for you, regardless of difference of and challenges, is your own, you know, your own blood. Now, I think one thing I'll add on that point is, I think, we're becoming so problematic nowadays. I forget cousins, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters are not, not even getting along. Yeah. You know, when I say get along, you know, people have you know their own children. And, you know, these children, you know, so, you know, let's say me and my brothers and their children, the immediate families, people are not even getting together as they used to. In the olden days, so many dawot, you know, every week there's a dawot going on. Every week something is happening. But, you know, we a month, two months go past, we're just too busy. And all of this... um. 
as a result, has a, I would argue, has a significant impact in our social fabric. And, you know, and the moment the social fabric starts to be, you know, shredded, then that slowly, slowly goes to your faith. And then the moment it goes to your faith, then, you know, you know the challenges that lead from there. So I think, you know, blood relationships, it's, you know, in today's day and age, I would say that is the most important thing a person can do to maintain social fabric. Yeah, yeah. I think what you mentioned them on is spot on. And um, in terms of being selfish, um, I personally think it's been kind of um, progressed during COVID, yeah, yeah. especially with lockdown. Sure. Because the mentality is like, like you say, selfish mentality, you know, yeah. especially in, in lockdown where everybody was just living in their own house, living with their own families. Yeah. No connection with anybody else. Yeah, yeah. That's just made it comfortable to be selfish. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but going back to um, what you were saying as well about society and giving importance to your own. So in line with today's topic, you know, how do we as Muslims benefit the wider society? To benefit the wider society, you have to benefit your own society, which is your family. Because your family is also part of the society that you're living in. Mm-hmm, yeah, you know, in Bangladesh, if we were in, Bang- in, in Bangladesh and, you know, um, like even to, to this day, if any issues happen in Bangladesh, like you say, who stands up for you? It's your family. And then it's your neighboring villages who will all come together. And then if there's a you know fight going on, it'll be your village and your group of villages against that group of village. Yeah, yeah. But in order to, for that to happen, you would have had to maintain a very close relationship with not just your own family, but your neighbors and the people that, that are near yeah, you. Yeah, but yeah. obviously we are moving away from that kind we of are, mentality. Are, and like you said, we've become really selfish. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing is, we've been talking today about um, the role of a Muslim as a Muslim as well. But one other thing we want to touch about, uh, I want to touch on before we kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, finish off is as a Muslim, our role with non-Muslims in society as well. I know we've talked about culture and um, picking up culture and disregarding our own culture. Mm-hmm. But obviously, when we're disregarding our own culture, um, uh, going back to, you know, um, the example that you gave about the wedding, uh, mm-hmm. when the father was saying to the, uh, the daughter, I want you to get married. Sometimes I feel like um, when people say um, Islam over culture, it's usually for personal reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they've got something wrong with that culture they don't want to accept, or yeah. they haven't got any other way around to kind of challenge it. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, that's when they come out and say, well, Islam doesn't allow it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. at that point, obviously, you have to, you know, have a balanced approach. Yeah, what yeah. is that good culture good for you or not? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of disregarding culture, you know, just putting that to a side, um, obviously, when we do disregard culture, um, we don't completely disregard it at the same time. We then pick up English culture yes. or non-religious culture and then we incorporate that in, that in part of our life. And as an example, you know, um, I remember growing up, my father was very strict on birthdays you know, and celebrating, you know, non-Islamic activities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it was, he was very passionate about, you know, as soon as he celebrated, that's, you know, Muslim anymore. But that was his, you yeah. know, ideology and that was his belief and, uh, you know, each to, the, each to their own. But, there are certain things that we do pick up, which obviously does go against our Islamic values and um, um, beliefs. So as a Muslim, what is our role when we face with those scenarios? So as an example, just to give an example, obviously, um, you know, we're in a working world. Um, we're not supposed to like physically interact with the opposite sex. So but the culture of our country, the country that we're living in is, you know, you hug, you shake, you know, you, 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 you there is a yeah. physical contact. But as a Muslim, how do you sort of, you know, overcome that situation? Yeah, yeah. I think um, for, for, from my sort of experience, I, I heard a talk many, many years ago of a famous American scholar. 
by the name of Sheikh Siraj Wahaj. Oh yes. Uh, he's still around I think. Yeah, yes, he is. Um, Siraj Wahaj. And he said, brothers, don't experience inferiority complex. <laughs> and this is the first time I heard that term, inferiority complex. I think what tends to happen is we many a times living in the you know, with, with our non-Muslim counterparts, with our you know with, with wider society, everybody is going to work, everybody is doing something of that nature. We feel many a times this experience of inferiority complex. Yeah. That you know what? I'm lower than that. You know, somebody said to me the other day, oh, um, the, the British culture allows so much flexibility and the other parts of the Western culture, so, you know, sorry, the Eastern culture is so strict. And I said, that's a completely false um, conceptualization of what East and West looks like. And it's just the window to our world, how we see things. So I think um, the first point is, and I'll come back to your points around physical interaction, talking about how we engage with non-Muslim fellows, colleagues and friends. But first and foremost is that we should not experience inferiority complex. The moment you experience this, in my words, I say that we completely become diluted. You know, we can't differentiate between what is my sort of, um, what's my values and what's the values of somebody else. Yeah. Because why? I think that I am lower than everybody else. My culture, my tradition, my voice, my window to the world is very much low than my white counterpart, you know, which is not true. Yeah. So I think that's a starting point. Many, many people experience this inferiority complex. You know, so for example, you know, I, actually I wrote one of my um, theses around this, that the doctor is always right. You know, nobody challenges the doctor. You know, the, <laughs> that's it, that's it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know that, that's that's a cultural thing, you know. That's a, you know. Yeah. And, but if you were from a, a, a let's say you know Western culture, you'd want a second and a third and a fourth opinion. You might have wanted to you know, take your medication or your um, medical approaches to a private clinic. You know, these things will never come to other types of cultures. The point is that number one is not to experience inferiority complex. I think the moment you do that, you have problems. That's a very valid point. Second point is, is you know we need to understand what is our values. So, for example, we have religious values, we'll have traditional values, we have cultural values. Um, so all those values said, you know, we, we have a holistic overview of what our, you know, values are, our, our perceptions are. And we need to be able to be blunt about that. So when I say blunt, respectfully blunt. Yeah. So, for example, you know, we need to pray Salah at work. I'll give you that as an example. I remember going to one building once and I said to some senior people there, so where do you guys pray? No, no, we'll just go to the car park and pray. So senior Muslims? Senior Muslims. Okay. I said, what do you mean you go to the car park and pray? Such a large building, there must be a room somewhere. Oh, no, no, we've never asked. Well, why haven't you ever asked? Is And, you know, no, we don't want to create problems. What, what problems? <laughs> you know, what do you mean problems? You have to ask. So the thing is that they're like, oh, you're, you're getting a bit uncomfortable. So I said, okay, no, I'll leave it to me. I want to ask very respectfully. But, you know, I just want some space to pray. You know what? straight away they make the arrangements. The point is that if you don't ask, you don't get. The non-Muslim community, they are very forthcoming. They're yeah. very hospitable. And I think that's the truth. You know, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you're from Sunderland, how can you say that? You know, we are man. <laughs> but the thing is, no, the truth is, wherever you go across the UK, you know, people are, you know, good in nature. You know, employers are good in nature. You know, it is very, and not just that, policy, strategy protects you. You know, the Equalities Act and others exactly. protect people around the, the, the requirements. You know, it's not just about religious requirements, whatever requirements you require. So the point is, many a times due to feeling that uncomfortableness, we don't ask. And you yeah. don't ask, you don't get. And you live and you flourish over that uncomfortableness. 
But the moment you ask those same people who don't even have your faith, who don't even understand what you do, are forthcoming to make that facility available for you. So I think that's a very, very important factor. And I've trialed and tested this up and down, you know, at least I could say the Northeast region, wherever I've been to, public sector, private sector, you know, small, medium enterprises, wherever I've had the need to fulfill a religious need or a cultural need, you know, let's say, for example, cultural, you know, nanny's unwell, can I please pop out, I'm going to have a word with them. They've never, you know, they say, okay, let's work around this, but there's never been a blunt no. Yeah. And that's professional. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I think the point is that we need to be proud about who we are. The moment you feel proud and you feel like, you know what, this is my value. This is who I am. And people like it or not, that's their issue. But this, I'm not going to change for other people. I'm going to be who I am. That's so true. So I think this is a key factor. The other point is, you know, the famous shaking of the hand, <laughs> you know, you know, giving, getting a bit of a cuddle or whatever that might be. You know, we need to be very clear with our non-Muslim friends, colleagues and, and, you know, and people that we engage with. But this is how we are. You know, for example, if you don't differentiate that you're going to go out on a night out and you don't drink alcohol and you say, no, it's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, no, just give me a... And you guys drink your vodka or whatever, just give me a kind of Coke. You know, you're not making any differentiation. Yeah. They think that, you know, Mo, Mo is one of us. You know, <laughs> Mo can never be one of them. Yeah. You know, so the point which I'm coming to is you need to be very open about who you are. Yeah. The moment you hide away from that and you change your name from Muhammad to Mo, from Abdullah to Abs, yeah, you start to create your own problems. Yeah, and yeah. all of this boils down to one thing, I believe, which is inferiority complex. Yeah, it's so important. What you're saying there is, and I think it's, if it is a case, as a Muslim, if you are, um, like, if you're not confident enough to speak up and you don't, you know, you know you need to pray, but you just don't have the courage to speak, then there is fundamental something wrong in there that you need to address first Absolutely. within yourself. Absolutely. And I think, well, I think also thing is that it is, um, you know, you mentioned earlier about guys go to uni and they'll, they'll, they'll take their beard and all this, um, or they'll change their ways of life. All of this is boiled down to that same point, is that they feel that they are the other. You know, yeah. we're not part of society. We're not, we're different. And sometimes you're made to feel that way. Yeah, you're made yeah. to feel, I remember going to a very important strategic meeting once and I sat down in the meeting and I'm getting ready, you know, and for this meeting and somebody said, oh, don't mind me asking, do you speak English? And I said, what? Yeah, that's a, I said, oh, yes, I speak the Queen's English. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the point is people have, and that's a mentality which other people have. Yeah, yeah. You know, look at, you know, colonial Africa. You know, this whole apartheid came under this, you know, they and the other, or us and the other. And I think some of that is still there. Um, but if we allow that to demean us, to make us feel inferior, then the, the, the world that we live in will never change. You know, we'll have the same problems again and again, again and again. And one thing I want to say is COVID has taught us this, that, you know, every man is for themselves and every woman is for themselves. Everybody will go in your own graves. Nobody's coming with you. You know, Ali radiallahu an, he once went to Baqi al-Gharqad and he said to the people of the graveyard, and I remember this all the time, he said that, oh, people of the graveyard, what is your situation? And he started to address them. They would not respond back to him. So he said, of course you can't respond back to me because you are already in the other world. Let me tell you, the mahalla, the houses that had your names on it has been removed. The ladies that you have left behind as widows have married and moved on. Your children don't remember you or people of the grave. What is your legacy? What have you left behind? And this is the nature that we are. So I think the truth is that we need to understand our own values, be proud of who we are, proud of our identity, and don't let popular culture, society demean us. Yeah, and I think one key way um, 
one key role as a Muslim in our society, especially the society that we're living in now, which is very vocal, is having those kind of conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, we recently had that event uh, just after Ramadan in the center. Um, the Ramadan, what was it, man? Iftar party. Iftar event, yeah. Where it, was, it wasn't just about giving iftar to, you know, Muslims and non-Muslims, but it was having that opportunity to speak about Ramadan, speak yeah. about, you know, this is why we're fasting and this is why it's so precious to us. But the people that attended, they not just enjoyed the food, but they enjoyed, like, learning about it, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they, did, they did. And to me, it was more... Uh, for, so the take back for me from that event was, like, we need to be more vocal about who we are, what That's we true. are, and... And we shouldn't be over-worried about the extreme right. Yeah. You know, we don't need to... We don't need to worry about the... You know, or be over-worried sorry, about the extreme right, because the the moment you sort of worry about these things, the less you be active. Yeah. The more you're worried about what the others will think. You know, the very famous scholar of Islam, Malana Ashraf Ali Tanvi, once he was sitting, if I'm correct, he was he was sitting with his students, and there was loads of letters that had gathered and our mashayikh write about this, and our scholars write about this. That on, so what he did was he said to his students, student, "Okay, start opening these letters up. All the good things, put it on one side, and all the bad things, put it on the <laughs> other side." So they had hundreds of letters, and they went through one after the other. One letter said, "You are Amirul Mu'minin." The other said, "You're a, you're a zindiq." You know, the other one said, "You are you know the greatest sheikh of our time." The other one said, "You're the greatest shaitan of our times." And all of these, so all of these letters gathered. Okay. And then he said to the fellow Muridin and the others that were there, he said to them, look, this is life. You know, some love you, some hate you. Right? You can't think about what people will think of you. Yeah. If you think about what people will think of you, you'll never be able to do anything. So the truth is, let people have their thoughts about us. You know, we do whatever we can to safeguard our identity, our culture, our religion, and ultimately preparations for the hereafter. And I think if we keep that as our daily mindset, then be the professional life, societal life, economical life, you know, personal life, everything becomes easy. Definitely, yeah. Ashallah, it's been a very amazing talk. Have you got any questions, Jen? I've got one last question. Go I always it. tend to end on something a bit more personal. Mm. So, Malana, obviously... <laughs> oh, it cost you. <laughs> as a father figure, um, you know, obviously you've got children raising them. I was going to say, as a father figure yourself. Yeah, no, no. What's going on there? <laughs> um, as, you know, when you're raising your children in this society that's ever-changing, you know, you mentioned that the first question was, you know, how society changed as, you know, as you've grown up. What are you most worried about, you know, about raising your kids in this society? I think the greatest worry I have for my children is safeguarding of the Iman. And mm-hmm. um, in according to the right methodology. I think that's the greatest concern I have. 100%. I, I don't think I have any worry about the financial status. I have no worry about their professional status. You know, I don't worry about that. I'm, I'm being quite frank. I don't, you know... Um, that's not my worry yeah. because at the end of the day you know my belief is that allah will maintain that you know once upon a time there was this thing what will the mullahs do there wasn't the mullahs, you know <laughs> yeah. what will the mullahs do why are the parents why is all these guys sending their kids to madrasa you know why don't they make them doctors and make them you know people who will generate income but the truth is look at the world today 2022 look in sunderland the same ulama who are people were saying mullah inti kitab urba. You know, where are they going to fill their stomachs from? MashaAllah, a majority of them are earning more than those with masters and PhDs. But my point is that income isn't an issue for me. I think whatever is in their nasib they will get. Exactly. The biggest concern I have in today's society is how the iman of my children and the children of all families um, are being manipulated. Everything is confusing. 
You know, everything seems to be right. And whatever they've been taught and indoctrined is right. And everything else beyond that is wrong. Yeah. So my concern is, you know, how do I me be a role model? Whatever that looks like, how do I be a role model for my children that at least they preserve their iman? And I must admit on the earlier point, as part and to preserve the iman, my culture plays a significant role in this. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I live with a false economy that, you know, culture doesn't play a role. But only after being a father and realizing as my children are growing up how important culture is as part of my faith. And you know, that's why two years ago I took them to Bangladesh. You know, I take them to other places around the world, especially Bangladesh and Saudi and other places, because they can taste some of that importance. So, long story short, I think any, and I think just to, sorry, just to add, I think the challenge of Iman 20 years ago and the challenge of Iman today is worlds apart. It worlds apart. Definitely. You know, there are many, many scenarios where 20 years ago, even society wouldn't accept those things to be normal. Today, it's, it's normal. If you talk about it, you talk against it, then you're seen as the abnormal. abnormal. Yeah, yeah. And well, on your point, Morris, yeah. just, to, um, just to mention there, the, the, the concerns that we've got in this generation, it isn't just from um, people that don't believe in Islam. It's even within our, yes, own, Muslim yes, communities our own Muslim community who yeah. are, you know, with their methodology, with their ideologies, are actually... Yeah, yeah. You know, putting especially young people and children away from Islam. It is. It is, and you know, one of my teachers, very, very famous scholar of his, um, in the UK, Manana Zahir Mahmoud. A lot of people have heard Sheikh Zahir Mahmoud. He is one of my teachers, and he says that these are the processes. These are his words. These are the processes of degradation. You know, it's it's, it's always downhill. You know, insan, mankind, who we are. I remember my Sheikh Sheikh Riyadh Hatsab who talks about this that we are always in a process of degradation. You know, as you get older, you're, you're going downhill. You're not getting you know, better. So the thing is, this is the scenario of our Iman. The, all of these challenges that come and as generations move from generation, it's a process of going downhill. Once upon a time, something that was accept, not even considered acceptable is today so acceptable that it's considered that if you don't say that acceptable, then you're abnormal. Yeah. You know, so these are the challenges of our children's Iman as we move on. And I think that is my biggest concern. Even if my children did not become ulama, you know, and that's not my drive. You know, if they, you know of course, you know, like when I'm Abu Khalid, I'll tell my time to madrasa, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, more important than we make them ulama and hufaz is that they preserve their iman in the right fashion. Always we've seen so many, how many people have we seen have been to madrasa, but they come and forget going off track. They lose their faith. Yeah. Oh, by the way, for the listeners, just to add, many people use this argument. Oh, don't send your kids to madrasa. If they come back, they're fatty you know, And that's, a, you know, that's an, as you said earlier, that's an easy way out. You know, you don't know until you try. <laughs> that's, you know, out of 100% is only 1% maybe. But the point is, today's challenge is how we preserve the iman of our children in the challenging times that we live. And, and I take Allah's name to this, that nothing will change if we don't change from home. Yeah. You, know, you can send them to every maktab, every school, every madrasa. If the home isn't sorted, the madrasa can't do the job. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know where I heard this recently. I think it might have been from, from you, Jihan, where we were talking about the next generation. Like, for for example, our gen- next generation is our children. So our children, they would only practice, what was it? Like, oh, it was, um, 60% it was the sheikh from Safwan's principal. Oh, Amana Fasla Hakwadi Yeah, yeah. 
It was actually in. Uh, oh, he was. Actually, oh, yeah, 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 that was. Said if you practice eighty percent, your children will always practice maximum seventy percent, and so yeah, on and yeah, so forth. Yeah. The idea of degradation as well. Yeah. And it's true. It's true. Yeah. And, and like Malala Fadhil and some others, they are the mashayikh. That we, they have the life experience. Yeah. You know, they are the ones. You know, you know there are people out there, and I, I'm thinking, is time nearly elapsed? Um, we usually talk for an hour, boys. Yeah, um, I just fine. want to add to this. But you know, we have this thing in today's culture. You know, if you have an issue, ask Sheikh Google. If you have an <laughs> issue, 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 then Sheikh Wikipedia will have your answer for you. But the thing is, and I, and I won't say much, but I just want to say this much that you know, it's easy to listen to a Sheikh on TV. It's easy to listen to a, a scholar uh, or ask a scholar online, but. That's not never been the methodology of Islam. Never. Yeah. It has never been the methodology. Yeah. The Sahaba radiallahu anhu majma'een, you know, they didn't ask passive questions to the Prophet sallallahu That is why the Quran calls them Sahaba, because of their suhba, because of the companionship. So I think this is an issue that, you know, contributes to why you know, we see this degradation. Because people don't spend sufficient time at the feet of the ulama. They don't spend time at the feet of senior scholars. You know, rather we would look for the opportunity to ridicule them. You know, to to and the truth is, I remember when I was young, they used to say that if you ridicule the ulama, it has an impact on your spirituality, it has an impact on your deen and on the deen of your family. It's true, it's true. You don't believe it? Try it, and you'll see. And you know, we've seen this as as living example. So I think the point is, and um, now that you mentioned about Mulana Fadl Hakwadisab, you know, I there's another thing that I try to do. I, I try to take my children in the company. They, you know, my children might not enjoy that. But you know they say that the the nigger or the, the the sight of a scholar upon the children changes their lives. Yeah. You know, Junaid Jamshed, for example, and others. What was it with them? They they remain spend few moments in the company of ulama, and the life changed. So, and I'm a strong believer of that. So I think, you know, taking our children in the company of senior scholars, even though they may hate it, even though they may not enjoy it, <laughs> but that for that moment, yeah. why for that moment, it'll have a significant impact as they grow older. No, that's hundred percent true. Because, like for for example, me and you, we go and see ulama and we stay in their company, and you know we stay in the masjid with um, ulama visiting, simply because that's what our fathers used to do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Even when we were kids, we didn't understand why. You know, we yeah. used to go to the masjid, we go with them, but probably end up messing around. You know, yeah, yeah. how many times did me, me and you get into trouble? But, <laughs> yeah. You know, but the thing is, as we grow up, we remember that oh, my dad used to take me to the masjid. But now as we grow up as fathers, we now understand the reason why they did it. And we also now feel the importance of doing it with our own children as well. Yeah, yeah. And like you, you know, I try my best to take my children, my niece and nephews um, to the, to these companies. And I mean, Jian here, you know, I've taken him to see my sheikh many times. And yeah. he's a, a, an example of um, a positive impact, you know, yeah. mashallah. But just coming to that point, Mala, about um, disrespecting ulama, when you were saying that, I just remember... Um, Sheikh Gangohi used to say that if you disrespect ulama, one of the consequences of disrespecting ulama is as Muslim when we pass away, our face is put towards the Qiblas in, in the actual grave. Because the people that disrespect ulama, Allah turns their face away from the Qiblas. Um, there was a backstory, but maybe next, for next time, but I can't <laughs> yeah, remember yeah. the story. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think, you know, maybe what we're finding here as a summary is in society, society today, you know, with all the discussion that we've had around culture and so on, I think one thing that summarizes is that we need to incline towards some sort of spirituality. You know, this is missing. You know, mm -hmm. everything's become black and white. 
even in our religion, yeah. you know, everything is black and white. I pray my salah isn't, you know, that. But the Quran says, "Laysal birra antuwalu wujuhakum qibla al mashriqi wal maghrib." Piety isn't that you face the east and the west, indicating towards salah, but piety that you be good to your blood relatives, you give in charity, and so on. So the point is that you know we're becoming more black and white. Yeah. Um, we're becoming more self-isolated, and we need to really reflect back on you know traditional customs that enabled that social fabric to be you know flourished. Mashallah. you do me, did me a favor there summarizing the topic. Mashallah, I just want to say it's been a pleasure having you on. Jazakallah for your time. Jazakallah, inshallah. I don't think we've got any more questions. No, no. Okay. And to our listeners, Jazakallah for your time as well and for listening in. Uh, please remember us and Mawlana in your du'as. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.